Hello everyone and welcome back. Uh, so today's chapter is chapter two of the MCAT biology, uh, I'm sorry, not biology, behavioral biology review, aka psychology review, aka behavioral sciences, and the topic is sensation and perception. So stay tuned and I'll be going into more detail in a second. All right, so to start off today, we should probably distinguish the difference between sensation and perception. All right, so sensation is when your body takes in the information and stimuli. Um, there's auditory, there's visual, and many other types of stimuli. And then perception is the processing of that information within the uh, central nervous system in order to make sense of the information. So think of sensation as, um, okay, let's say I put my hand in a fire, right? The stimuli would be um, the, the visual stimuli, you know, that the fire is indicating um, danger. And uh, obviously my brain is going to take that in and my hand is going to sense the heat. So uh, perception in this case would be when my brain processes, oh, this is hot. This is really hot. So just think of it like that. And you can think of processing and perception together because they both start with a P. Um, so yeah, that's basically how I'd remember it. All right, so what are sensory receptors? They're basically neurons that respond to stimuli by triggering electrical signals. Um, there's two types of main stimuli we should know, um, or classifications. The first is distal stimuli, and that's an outside stimuli. And the second is a proximal stimuli, uh, or proximal stimuli, plural. And this is byproducts of distal st stimuli. So I know this doesn't make sense yet, but let me put it into an example. So... Let's say you have a campfire once again. Um, the campfire itself, uh, itself would be the distal stimuli or stimulus, distal stimulus. Um, and the photons and heat waves emitted by the fire would be the proximal stimulus, if that makes sense. So because it's a byproduct of the actual stimulus, which is the fire. And the fire can stimulate different reactions, such as it can indicate that it's dangerous or that it gives warmth. Um, and that would once again go into sensation and perception. So how does the stimulus travel in the body? So it goes through the ganglia and then it goes into projection areas in the brain. So that's basically, you know, the process of uh, processing, <laughs> process of processing. Um, so let me go over a few different types of receptors. Uh, there's photoreceptors, which as you can guess, those are sight. Uh, responsible for uh, envisioning things, um, just seeing things. Then there's mechanoreceptors, and that's associated with movement. Uh, you can think of this because oftentimes in science, when you hear the prefix mechan, uh, like kind of like mechanic, um, you think of motor movement. Uh, so that's how I think of it. Uh, next, nociceptors. Those are specifically pain receptors. Uh, so once again, they're called nociceptors. And then there's thermoreceptors, which detects thermal sensation. That's in the name, so it's pretty easy to remember. Um, once again, thermoreceptors. Next, there's osmoreceptors. And I like to think of osmoreceptors and associate, uh, I'm sorry, associate them with osmosis because they actually do have to do with water in the body. Osmoreceptors are responsible for uh, maintaining water homeo homeostasis. So basically making sure that uh, the water in your body is maintained at a at an equilibrium that it's you know it's well balanced in your body. Next, we have the olfactory receptors, which are you know responsible for smell. Um, 
that one i the only reason i know what olfactory is is because i when we were growing up i kept hearing olfactory and i was like wow that's a weird name for um scent but anyways you're gonna have to memorize that and then there's taste receptors which are just taste receptors uh, next i want to talk a little bit about an important equation um you should be familiar with this equation uh, i will read it out loud but you should go and uh, search it up just to visualize it better. But this equation is with regards to absolute threshold. And this is the minimum stimulus energy needed to activate a sensory system. Um, and the equation looks uh, something like, I believe it's an I, I node, and then in parentheses, 10 to the power of negative 12. Um, and yeah, that's the human hearing absolute threshold. Uh, so once again, absolute threshold is the minimum stimulus energy needed to activate a sensory system. I know that right now it's a lot of biology, um, but in future lessons, it's going to go more into uh, the fun stuff, which is uh, more of like social stuff and uh, behavioral stuff. This is more still like biology, but behavioral biology. Okay, so... Uh, there is something that scientists can conduct called a discrimination test, and it basically uh, lets people know the different levels of stimuli uh, that are tested and see if, um, or I guess let me rephrase that. So a discrimination test is when different levels of stimuli are tested, right? Uh, this could be like through hearing, for example, you're playing uh, different pitches at different decibels, just an example. And... Um, scientists would observe if changes are noticed by the subject. And uh, the percentage difference is known as Weber's law, which is pretty important because I've seen a few questions about this. And yeah, just know that um, the noticeable difference is something important. So the noticeable difference of uh, a shift between stimuli, basically. Uh, next, I wanna talk about signal detection theory, which is the study of how these stimuli work. And you should be familiar with this. Um, it's actually like a little chart. Uh, I wish I could put videos on this or pictures, but if you've seen it, it's like hit, miss, false alarm, or correct negative. So basically um, what this is saying is, let's say someone plays a stimulus or a signal, uh, the signal's uh, present, and the subject says that they don't detect the signal, so that would be a miss. But if they do detect it, then it's a hit. And let's say there is no signal uh, present, but the subject still says that there, there's a signal, they detect a signal, then it's a false alarm. And then if the subject says, no, there is no signal, and there really isn't a signal, then it's a correct negative. So it's basically self-explanatory. Uh, just, I recommend searching up signal detection theory, just so you're more, more familiar with the chart. Not super important, not so, uh, something super elaborate either. Um, and you should just know what adaptation means. And it's just the changes in ability to detect stimulus change over time. Uh, so for example, if I go into a dark room right now, my pupils would dilate in the dark to adjust to the lighting versus in the sun, they would constrict. Uh, so it could prevent less light from entering my eye and damaging my eye. And there's a bunch of adaptations that our body does um, when we're placed into certain situations with different stimuli. Uh, and I'm sure you could think of some, but basically that's all that it means. Okay, so uh, the chapter actually goes on to talk about the specifics of the eye. And there's actually a lot to talk about the eye. So get ready for that. Once again, this is kind of like um, when I went over 
the basics of brain biology, it's going to be a lot of parts to memorize. Just like you have to memorize the lobes and parts of the brain, you should know or be familiar with the parts of the eye. All right, so once again, I do recommend looking at, the, at a diagram, but uh, I can go over the different parts of the eye. So let's start off with the retina because that's the first thing I see. Um, the retina is in the back of the eye and it contains photoreceptors. Um, you should also know that the lens control the reflection, uh, refraction of light. So the lens are in the front of the eye. I'm going from the back to the front. Um, and those, uh, the lens are behind everything else. So they're behind the iris, behind the cornea. So the iris, um, it has a dilator pupillae and constriction pupillae. So as you can imagine, this helps constrict and dilate your eye. And the cornea, it gathers and focuses light. So just like uh, I was mentioning how when you go in a dark room, your eyes adjust, you could guess that these two parts, the cornea and the iris, would, and the lens actually, they would all be involved in controlling how much light gets into your eye. Um, you should also know that the eye is filled with aqueous humor, which is basically a fluid in the front part of the eye, and it just protects it. And um, yeah, that's very crucial to know. Um, next, you should know that we have cones and rods in the eye. And I'm sure you've learned about this in bio or something, but just a refresher, cones are for colored vision. So they process color. And you can remember this because cones start with C and color starts with C. Super easy to remember. And rods function best in reduced light. So rods and reduced light. Just think of R-O-D, R-U-D, similar. Um, but yeah. And rods only have one pigment called uh, rotospin. Rotospin, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, so just be familiar with that. And the cones and the rods are located in the fovea. Um, or I'm sorry, only cones are located in the fovea. Uh, and the fovea only has cones because um, visual activity is best here. Uh, next, I'm gonna talk about something called parallel processing, uh, kind of going back to the brain and the eyes, so how they kind of connect. So the brain has the ability to analyze information regarding color, form, um, and depth at the same time, and motion, sorry. So color, form, motion, and depth at the same time. And this is done through parallel processing. It's basically the signal way from your brain to the, uh, from your brain between the eyes and stuff like that. All right. And um, you should see a diagram of how the eyes connect to the brain. It's pretty interesting. Um, they actually cross wires in a way. Like the left eye will cross a pathway to reach the right side of the brain and vice versa. And where these wires cross, wires in quotations, um, this is called the optic chiasm, chiasm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right again. Uh, but this is where pathways cross. Um, not super important, just fun fact. All right, so there are certain cells in the eyes and the brain that are responsible for certain things. So the first one, for example, is color. And once again, like we said before, color is associated with cones. Um, next, form is associated with parvocellular cells. Motion is associated with magnocellular cells. And that's pretty easy to remember, M and M. And then depth is associated with binocular neurons. 
And uh, depth is also pretty easy to remember because just think of when you're looking into the distance, uh, you're looking into the depth of a valley or something, you're going to need binoculars to look at that. So once again, binocular neurons. All right, so this is a pretty dense chapter. Um, so let's go into the ear now. I'm going to be going over the ear and taste and smell and a few principles that we should be familiar with. All right, so let's just jump right into the ear. So there's two different types of acceleration um, that occurs in the ear. So there's something called linear acceleration, and this is detected by utricle and the saccule, so two parts of the ear. And then uh, there's also something called rotational acceleration, and this is detected by the semicircular canals. Now, this is important because you might get a question asking about um, the orientation of your head and which part of the, the ear uh, would be affected or which part of the ear is involved in sensing the rotation of your head. Um, just be familiar with these. So once again, linear acceleration is detected by the utricle and the saccule, and rotational acceleration is detected by the semicannular uh, semicircular canals. All right. Now, here's another dense part. How does sound get to your ear? The sound travels through a bunch of uh, parts of your ear. All right, so it starts at the uh, pina, and then it goes through the external auditory canal, and then it goes through the tympanic membrane, then it goes through the malleus, then the incus, and then it goes through an oval window, and then it goes through a paralymph in the cochlea, or cochlea, and then it goes through the ba uh, basilar membrane, and then it goes through the hair cells in your ear, so you know, the hair that you have in your ear, and then it goes through the vestibulocochlear nerve, and then it goes to the brainstem, and then it goes to the medial geniculate yeah, nucleus of the thalamus, so the MGN for short. Yeah, that's a long name, so just think of MGN. And then finally, it goes to the auditory cortex, which is the part of the brain that processes this information, also known as the temporal lobe. So just think when your brain is processing sound, it always ends up in the temporal lobe or the auditory cortex, which is easier to remember. Okay, so an important structure in your brain is uh, the cochlea, or cochlea, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, if you haven't seen it before, it kind of looks like a spiral shell. So it's pretty cool. Um, you could look at it. Also, it, it kind of looks like a, a snail shell. If you, um, if you think of Gary from SpongeBob, because it's spiraled like that. Okay, so the inner cochlea is what detects low-pitched sounds, um, and the outer uh, part of the cochlea detects high-pitched sounds. So um, the low-pitched sounds are detected by vibrations at the apex, which is the inner part of the cochlea, once again. So just think of the middle of the spiral. And then the high-pitched sounds are detected at the outer part of the shell, which... Um, is detected by vibrations at the base. So the base is the outer part of the shell. All right, so now that we covered that, um, I don't believe that uh, memorizing word for word, uh, the pathway of sound to the ear is 100% necessary. I don't wanna say that it's uh, completely unnecessary, but I do think that it's important to know what parts of the ear do. Um, 
but it wasn't emphasized that much in the brain. I mean, uh, not in the brain, I'm sorry, in the book. So, um, yeah, uh, just know, like, the cochlea, know which part of the brain is responsible for hearing and all that, and also linear and rotational acceleration. But anyways, moving on, uh, let's go into taste and smell. So, um, when you smell something, it goes through the nose to the brain, and this is, once again, another pathway. I'm just going to say it just so you know it. Uh, but it goes through the nostril. So the scent goes through the nostril, and then that goes through the nasal cavity. So, so far, easy to, to uh, follow along with. Then it goes through the olfactory chemoreceptors. All right. And then it goes through the olfactory bulb. And then it goes through the olfactory tract. And then it goes to higher order brain regions. So... Uh, once again, don't think you have to know exactly the pathway, but just be familiar with it. Okay, uh, so smell is sensitive to volatile, volatile or aerosolized compounds. Volatile or aerosolized compounds. All right, so that's basically like um, just thinking about uh, compounds that are easily spread in the air. Just think of like Febreze and stuff. That's why the, uh, the nose is sensitive to it. And uh, you should also be... Um, or you should also know that smell is the only sense that does not pass the thalamus. So everything else does pass through the thalamus except smell. And um, do know this because I did get a practice question on it. And now that I look back on it, it was in my notes. I just had forgot. And then taste is sensitive to dissolved compounds. So smell is sensitive to volatile and aero. Uh, aerosolized compounds and taste is sensitive to dissolved compounds. All right, and then I'm just gonna say something really brief about um, touch sensation, so otherwise known as somatosensation. Um, somatosensation is basically the detection of pressure, vibration, pain, and temperature. So just think about everything that you can feel. It's either caused by pressure, a vibration to your hand, uh, pain, to your hand, so sticking your hand in a fire, or temperature, which, you know, also sticking your hand in a, in a fire. All right, so that's basically all for the senses and um, knowing the big parts of, you know, the uh, not the brain, but of each sense. But what was also talked about in this chapter was something called Gestalt's uh, principles. And uh, you should be very familiar with these. Uh, but I will try to describe them over audio, even though it's better to visualize, but here we go. So there's five. Um, so the first one is proximity, right? And also, I just want to backtrack a little bit. The uh, Gestalt's principles are basically ways of explaining uh, how we complete images in our brain in order to make sense of images that might not be fully completed. So like, let's say, Let's say I were to draw an incomplete square on a piece of paper, um, but in that square, there's a few gaps. My brain would automatically um, sew it together and tell me, oh, that's supposed to be a square because of these principles and because it knows uh, from previous clues that, hey, that's supposed to be a square. It just has a few holes in it. Um, so that's essentially what these principles are going to talk about. So back to the principles. Proximity is uh, when units close together make a bigger unit. So for example, let's say I have eggs in an uh, egg carton, right? Let's say I take those eggs out and I form them together into the shape of a triangle. So because those eggs, those circular eggs are proximal to each other, 
um, in a way where they form the shape of a triangle, um, they would make that bigger unit, which is a triangle. But in reality, those eggs are singular units making a larger unit. Uh, so that's proximity. When things are closer together, they tend to form a bigger shape or unit. Next, similarity. Similarity is basically the principle that uh, similar items are grouped together. So that one's pretty basic. Um, but let's say I have another egg carton. Um, so I have the, the white egg carton with full of white eggs, and then I have a brown egg carton full of brown eggs. Um, your brain automatically detects that the brown eggs are similar and then that the white eggs are similar, even if they're scattered. Like, let's say I just put them all in a bowl, uncracked, my brain would still be able to tell which ones are similar. Okay, <clears throat> next there's something called good continuation. And this is harder to explain. Uh, I recommend searching a picture of this on Google, but it's basically when your brain takes a shortcut uh, to try to disassemble a larger picture together. Um, so let me think of an example real quick so I could explain it. Okay, so I guess the example for this, um, think of having two pencils, right? And you take those pencils and you cross them over to form the shape of an X, right? So let's say you just leave them on the table or on the desk, and then you have your friend come in and you ask your friend um, how to deconstruct this X. Your friend would likely say that uh, this X is composed of two diagonal lines instead of two Vs. Uh, if that makes sense, I hope that makes sense. But, uh, you know, how there's the shape of an X forms technically two Vs or it forms two diagonal lines. Uh, so your brain is likely to take the easier route to try to digest the information. So instead of your brain saying, oh, it could be two pencils shaped in the shape of a V, but one is just upside down, it's going to say, no, it's likely that it's two diagonal lines crossing each other because that's just easier to imagine. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, once again, try to Google it. Uh, but it's basically when your brain takes a shortcut. So that was good continuation. Next, there's also something called subjective contours, <clears throat> which, as I said before, I think it's better if you Google. Uh, but this is basically when a set of shapes help outline um, a new shape. That's the best way I can explain it. It's just another way of uh, smaller images or smaller objects helping form a bigger image. And last but not least, we have the fifth principle, and that's closure. And that's basically like the example I gave earlier where I have a square that has uh, a few gaps in between it. So let's say I drew a square on a piece of paper, and then I just erased through it a few times, but most of the square is there. It just has a few gaps. So once again, my brain would know that it's a square because, first of all, most of it is still shaped like a square. And second of all, even if it wasn't, my brain could likely stitch together those pieces and determine, oh, if that were stitched together based on previous uh, visualizations of a square, then this is probably a square. So that's all for Gestalt's principles, Gestalt, however you want to say his name. Um, and I know that this was a dense chapter, just like the first, uh, but I do recommend searching the principles up. I do recommend looking at diagrams for each uh, uh, sensory system, just so you're more familiar with where certain things or certain parts are, like the eye, for example. But that concludes this chapter. And uh, I just wanted to say, uh, I hope you have a great day and I hope that you ace your studying right now. Good luck with uh, getting ready for this tedious exam. 
and I'll be trying to record more episodes and finding ways to make this easier to visualize. But hopefully, we'll get into the fun stuff soon. But yeah, that's it, and have a great day.